0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Woe is Media. We hope everyone had a wonderful, wonderful week, hopefully a short one, if you were able to take Memorial Day off at work, if you had that off. So welcome back. Um, We got some good stories here today. We are officially kicking off Alyssa's Pride Project. So whoop, here it is. That's exciting. I'm ready. You got your Pride Project. What else have you got in store for us?
1: So today I'm gonna be talking about SNL alum Bowen Yang's um, venture into podcasting with an all queer cast for a new Audible original. And the premise is something. Um, Not gonna get too much into it just yet. And for my pride project this week, um, basically the whole point of the pride project is to highlight members of the LGBT community that have made expansive changes and left a huge legacy in various different forms and like areas of professionalism. So today we're gonna be focusing on a civil rights icon.
0: Nice. Get ready. That is exciting. What about you? My stories are, I don't know if dark is the right word, but they're definitely not like super upbeat. Um, One of mine is about what's going on with The Sackler family, who is the family who owns Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the company that invented Oxycontin, and what's going on with them and their bankruptcy trial. And then my other story is about the JBS beef hacking that happened this week. So a little spooky this week. So sorry in advance, but hopefully you guys will enjoy these. Me meat. I'll start off with, I guess, the more extreme of the two stories first, just kind of, you know. Move, move on to the happier stuff. So this first story is called the Sackler Swerve. Hey. So here's why they're swerving here. So federal judge Robert Drain of New York, he recently approved Purdue Pharmaceuticals bankruptcy plan to move forward. And what this means, they've been, they've declared bankruptcy because they're getting sued out the wazoo because they have been aggressively marketing Oxycontin, which is a highly addictive drug. They've been aggressively marketing it to get sales up, even though a lot of people involved in the company knew that it was an extremely addictive drug and they were still told to push it anyway. So they're being sued out the wazoo. Obviously, they have been a huge contributor to the opioid crisis in this country. Very sad, very scary. They deserve to, you know, be punished for it because that's not okay to get people addicted to very intense drugs like that. Um, So... That's why they're declaring for bankruptcy is because of all this, you know, suing and everything and their reputations in the toilet. But this plan would basically allow the creditors to vote on a bankruptcy deal. And what that means is so the creditors would be everybody who is owed money from Purdue Pharmaceuticals. But what this means is that it would protect the members of the owning family, which is the Sacklers, it would shield them from more than 400 civil and criminal cases filed against them for their role in the opioid crisis. So it's basically just an attack on the company and their assets, not the individual family members, which some people would argue is a good thing because, you know, corporations are separate from their owners. That's kind of the whole purpose of it. hmm But the the Sacklers as a family were heavily involved with the company um, and getting it off the ground and getting the OxyContin so aggressively marketed. So a lot of people think they are at fault here, Um, some family members more so than others. But there are over 600,000 individuals right now and governments and tribes people who have been affected by Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the opioid crisis, 600,000. That's 60% of a million. It's a big number of people. Yes. just by this one company. So, and the settlement is gonna be paid out to victims of opioid addiction. Um, a lot of people believe it's unfortunately not enough. The Sacklers are gonna give up ownership of this company. They're like, okay, all right, we'll walk away. We're not, we won't be involved with this anymore. Um, and they're personally giving up $4.2 billion from their personal fortune to people who have like been victims of Oxycontin addiction. Um, But it kind of allows them to have a clean slate because like legally, there's not going to be anything going on for them. Like they can't get sued personally for this sort of stuff Mm -hmm. going forward. And they're still going to walk away as one of the richest families in America, even after giving up $4.2 billion to victims of OxyContin addiction. Of
1: course they are.
0: Yeah. So this is just kind of like, it's very much legally speaking a gray area. There's not a lot of precedent for this. And we don't know even if bankruptcy courts have the power to shield people like this from that kind of crime. So I don't know. A lot of people say that it is very much an overreach. And the interesting distinction here is that the company is filing for bankruptcy. The Sacklers themselves are not filing for bankruptcy. So why are they the ones being protected? Yeah. Normally it would be like, okay, the company cannot be sued because we're gonna settle all of this. The creditors, they're gonna vote. They will figure it out. You know, no, no more lawsuits. We will get you your money as soon as we can, basically type thing. But the Sacklers, they don't have to give up that much. They're not gonna get sued. And they walk away with a clean slate and no ownership with this like very toxic company. So I don't know, There's there's kind of a lot going on here. And a lot of people really oppose this plan. Um, Like I said, they think it's kind of an overreach of federal judge Robert Drain for basically allowing this. 24 state attorney generals currently oppose this plan. Um, And they basically say that it's a very dangerous precedent for wealthy people who are involved with wrongdoing because it kind of lets them get off more or less scot-free. So, but the Sacklers are like, well, we didn't do anything. Like, this is not our fault that people got addicted to opioids. Somebody has to take the blame for this, and obviously nobody wants to. And like I said, it's a big family, and there are obviously varying degrees of knowledge within the family, I'm sure, of how addictive OxyContin is. And you never know how involved certain family members were with the business. Maybe some weren't that involved at all. Who knows? I didn't really look too much into the individual people of it because it's not really something that's being reported on much, but somebody had to have done something wrong along the way to keep aggressively marketing OxyContin, knowing that it had kind of this, you know, very addictive quality. Yes. Uh, Purdue Pharma first filed in 2019 for bankruptcy, and there are a lot of civil lawsuits that are completely, like, they can't even go forward in court now, so a lot of these victims are potentially not going to get it what they think they're owed which is kind of sad and purdue has pleaded guilty twice to federal crimes related to the marketing of the opioids that they were selling so they know basically that they were overly stepping and overly trying to get this on the market and get people to purchase it kind of knowing how addictive it would be yeah Um, so There will be a final vote by all the creditors sometime this summer. And then once that happens, Purdue Pharmaceuticals plan is to be restructured as a nonprofit. I don't really know how that's going to work. I can't, it's hard to see like a massive pharmaceutical company being set up as a charity. Like, I hope it'll go toward, um, you know, opioid addiction research and treatment and all those types of things, but I'm not... Totally sure yet how that's going to play out. We'll have to keep you guys updated on that. Um, And all the settlement money, like after all the bankruptcy stuff goes through, it'll be put into a National Opioid Abatement Trust Fund and it'll be dispersed to all the different states kind of according to how hard they were hit. Like Ohio is one of the states that was really, really hit hard by the opioid crisis. So they'll probably get a pretty big proportion of that money, which is good for Ohioans who have opioid addictions for sure. And it'll be paid out in installments over nine to 10 years. So it's not like all this money is just going to get dumped onto the States immediately. It'll be more of a slow going process for sure. Um, but what's, what's annoying and I guess frustrating probably for the victims about this is because there's, they could in theory vote no on this plan and try and get the Sacklers in deeper trouble personally and trying to get you know more money out of them but what happens with that is the way bankruptcy is calculated is it's the total amount that ends up being owed but then you have to subtract out all the legal fees so the longer you drag this stuff out and the more people get sued the more negotiations there are the more the lawyers profit and the less the actual victims are going to profit okay So it's not fair because we obviously want the victims to get what they're owed, and they probably deserve a lot more than what they're getting. But it really doesn't benefit them very much to fight it because it's just going to make it worse. So it's kind of like you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. Right. Which is yeah, upsetting. Um, I mean, lawyers. It's kind of like it's the same as divorce, right? Like. Yeah. Lawyers end up profiting off divorce. Lawyers are profiting off this opioid crisis for sure. And I'm not saying lawyers are bad people. This is obviously their job to like defend companies and then- No, it's
1: okay. Call my brother out. It's fine.
0: Uh, my dad's a lawyer too. I'm not calling oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Um
1: We hate our families here on Woe is Media.
0: <laughs> Listen, I would never personally go to law school, but um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of a waste of time to just sue them. It's probably best to just kind of take what you- are able to get and walk away with it. Um, and Judge Robert Drain has said this himself, he thinks this is the best chance for the victims to get their relief. So he's kind of encouraging everybody to you know, vote for it and pass it. Um, so yeah, I think that's pretty much all I have on this story. This one was a little shorter because it's, it's a lot of legal stuff, which is not the most exciting to listen to. Um, but it, it's kind of a dangerous precedent to set to have very rich families heavily protected from the law like that. And if you think about it, like bankruptcy courts are really just kind of supposed to help create like how assets are divided up and who gets paid and in what order and like all of that stuff and how that goes. It's not necessarily their position, in my opinion, to protect people from lawsuits like that, like individual people, companies maybe, but not not individual people, so the Sacklers are kind of walking away with clean slates and maybe 4.2 billion less money in their pocket, but you know, they can make that up through their numerous other business ventures they got going on. So yeah, that's all I got for that story. It's a little gloom and doom. Hopefully the victims are able to, you know, have a slightly expedited process and get, get what they need so they can get some treatment.
1: That was lovely. I really enjoyed that because I'm not even trying to be facetious right now. When I first got into my job in news, this was one of the first stories that I learned about yeah. before uh COVID hit. And obviously I didn't understand every single part of it, but I did realize that it was a very, very difficult and complex process. So I appreciate you shining a brighter light on this moment.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I hope I didn't overcomplicate anything, Um, legal stuff in general is not my favorite thing to research, but I do think it's kind of important to highlight how if you have resources and power, that things can potentially go very different for you in the court system in this country. um, At the expense of others, which is obviously not a good thing. So, so my second story is called, Where's the Beef? <laughs> Alyssa, and I i'm going t- to wendy's <laughs> we're going to wendy's yeah we're going to arby's they have the meat too um oh, yeah, you're right Alyssa and i were gonna alternate this week but we decided not to because of the nature of my stories versus the nature of Alyssa's stories we wanted to end on Alyssa's more positive notes because mine are a little bit you know blah, this week <laughs> so getting into where's the beef so jbs it's have you heard of jbs i have you have okay i honestly had not which made me feel like a little bit of an idiot because apparently one out of every four burgers eaten in america is jbs meat Mm -hmm. um but jbs is the biggest meat company in the world by sales so i guess they have a lot of brands they own like pilgrims pride um and a couple of others that are obviously like very big popular grocery store brands um they so jbs had a hijacking of their computers on may 31st of this week so they there was a really big ransomware attack and this is very (laughs) similar to what happened with the colonial pipeline a few weeks back um so jbs is based in brazil but they have nine american plants and all of them had to be shut down because they couldn't get into their computers they were like completely locked out so and all of their production now is automated yes the only way they were able to reopen was to do very tedious manual labor <laughs> to get the meat back up and running because people were like where is the beef?
1: Get the meat.
0: Get the meat. So they had to shut it down because they couldn't get into their computers but they were able to pretty quickly get operations back up and running on Wednesday because they were you know able to kind of get around the ransom a little bit. Um so it was a ransomware attack and it was likely perpetrated by a Russian-based criminal organization. This is according to the White House. Yes. So Big shocker here. Um, Russia involved in hack. Um, you know, nothing exactly new, but it doesn't make it any less frightening. Especially when they're attacking, you know, a utilities company and now a food company. Like these are all very basic consumer staples we need in our everyday lives. I do need. So, yes, we definitely need the meat. Um, so what is a ransomware attack? So it's basically when hackers, they steal an organization's data, and then they lock the computers. And in order to basically allow the victim to regain access to their data, they have to pay a ransom to kind of get back online, basically. And the hacker says, if you don't pay us, we're going to leak all of this very sensitive information, and then we're going to keep you locked out of your computers. And sometimes they will also threaten to Delete all of their backup data if they have any backup data. So um, things can get obviously very messy um, with that, and especially with you know oil and gas and with food. Like I said, they're consumer staples, and these are you know massive global companies. So this is quite a lot of data that they have on their systems.
1: They're going to um, leak the Krabby Patty secret formula. <laughs>
0: that's exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. Um, so governments and cybersecurity experts have basically encouraged companies if this ransomware attack happens to them, they've basically said, no, don't give in to them because that's just gonna keep encouraging them to do it. Like, don't pay off the the company. Um, and the companies are like, but we have to get back up and running. Like, what are we gonna do? Or like, it's you know, kind of a drop in the bucket when you think about all the lost sales, you know? So if you're big enough. Um, But it certainly does not help encourage the hackers to leave you alone if you just kind of pay them out every time they come knocking. So it's kind of a tricky issue. Um, And like I said, this is the same thing that caused the Colonial Pipeline shutdown for six days and that caused a major gas price spike and there were gas shortages and everybody was filling up. And Alyssa, was Texas affected by that at all? Or not really? JBS? The, The Colonial Pipeline
1: very actually the the area where i live actually is very close to um i live near houston but not in houston and it starts in houston and it goes through my area up north towards um the eastern coast so yes this area was heavily affected by colonial pipeline
0: okay gotcha yeah georgia definitely was too i think a lot of the southern united states was hit really hard um but filling up your your gas tank during a shortage was not the move it was best to just kind of wait it out and was not 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 cause more of the problem um but there's no word for sure if this is the exact same group that did the colonial pipeline hacking that one was called dark side another russian hackers organization um but whether or not it was dark side or if they just basically like kind of what's the word um like offshored their services to someone else. Russia is like letting all this happen within their, you know, domain, within their country. They're harboring basically international hackers to attack major American or international companies. So it's kind of scary to see all this happening. Um, And President Biden is obviously not happy about it. and a lot of people think this is kind of Putin's way of punking Biden because he and President Putin are supposed to meet at the end of the month for a summit. So a lot of people think Putin is kind of setting the tone and trying to tell President Biden, like, who's got the upper hand here and what's going on in the world of international politics. And, you know, Putin is not not going to be pushed around, basically. So but he's going to do it at the expense of the American consumer. So, yes. Um, the Colonial Pipeline hack, they did end up paying the ransom. They had to pay $5 million and it was requested in Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin, Sorry. I know it seems silly, but it's very crucial to the story because Bitcoin, remember, is completely anonymous. Yes. So it keeps the identity of the hackers a secret if they are paid in Bitcoin. So potential, like, solutions to these big ransomware attacks happening, we just- we can't pay them in Bitcoin. Like We're like, no, you get cash or you don't get anything or you know, we're not gonna pay you at all because that just keeps perpetuating the idea that they can stay anonymous and that we'll continue to give in to them. Other um, potential solutions for this, it, it, it's getting to the point where it's bigger than individual businesses. So a lot of people think that the government's gonna have to get involved here, either with some sort of domestic policy or some sort of foreign policy um so the U.S. government would be intervening to kind of dissuade the hackers or negotiate with them if necessary um and foreign policy it would be like the White House is kind of like the only group like within the U.S. that can pressure foreign groups to stop the attacks and they can issue like sanctions and stuff like that to to punish Russia or if there are other countries who are kind of involved in this to punish those groups and be like no you know we're gonna You know cut off shipping here or whatever there's all kinds of economic sanctions that can happen um to sort of dissuade this from happening and it's like i said these are everyday consumer staples so hackers clearly are not scared to take on these big fish um i'm kind of worried that the next big target will be some sort of bank because that's obviously very very data heavy, um, a lot of financial information, social security numbers, bank account numbers, routing numbers, that's very sensitive. Um, and they obviously know that banks hold a lot of money. So if I had to guess what their next target would be, that would be my guess. Um, I hope that's not the case because that's obviously really scary. But um, that's that's my personal prediction there. So there's no word yet if JBS actually did pay off the ransom. Um, if they did, they're certainly not talking about it. So maybe more will kind of develop there. Um, And the good news is they were able to get back up quickly. There was only a very short term minimal increase in beef prices Mm
1: -hmm. while they
0: were kind of down and only like a very small shortage. Um, So thankfully not nearly as big of a disaster as the colonial pipeline. Um, But regardless, there are hackers over in the East and they're they're out for money in bitcoin <laughs> and they're out for our data so that's what i got for us this week
1: idk why um when you just said that now one of my favorite movies in the entire world is the best little horror house in texas and there's the song that the villain of the movie sings and he's like texas has a horror house in it lord have mercy bless my soul and i was just like the east has some hackers in it like i don't know why i saying that. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it's okay. That's funny.
1: Ignore me. <laughs> Everybody go watch Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. It's mm-hmm. a gem. Okay. <laughs> so before I get into my pride project today, I did want to share a pride-related story that I found from Audible and Entertainment Weekly, you know, my faves. Mm-hmm. And it is about SNL's Beau and Yang creating a new podcast with an all-queer ensemble cast.
0: That's exciting. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm already laughing. Um, The
1: show, it's a six-episode limited action comedy series for Audible. It's an Audible original, and it's called Hot White Heist.
0: Hot White Heist, okay.
1: Would you like to take a guess at what this show could be about?
0: Um, heist crimes, is it a true crime broadcast?
1: It's not true crime. It is about a heist of some sort, but would you like to take a guess at what
0: kind of heist? Oh, is it a white one? Yeah. Yeah, so it's just like white heist, like white people heists? No. What does that mean then? I'll explain it to
1: you. So the show's premise is basically summed up as, queer contemporaries attempt to steal the US government's valuable stash at a sperm bank. Oh my God, that's so funny. (laughs) So it is a sperm bank heist. Okay. The idea is that over the years, the US government has collected samples from history's greatest minds, and this group of individuals that are played by an all-queer cast, their goal is to sell the supply on the black market and use the money to buy an island with the goal of transforming it into a queer paradise.
0: Wow. What an idea. That's, that's really funny.
1: I like literally was reading this. I was like, there's no way this is real, but I love it.
0: I know that sounds like a, I don't know, more like a movie than a podcast to me, but that's funny.
1: Maybe we can hope for like an adaptation in the future.
0: Yeah, I certainly hope so. That sounds pretty entertaining. I'd watch it.
1: Right. So some of the notable names that are attached to this project as of yet, other than Bowen Yang, Cynthia Nixon, I know, right? We Miranda. We, <laughs> me and Annabelle both we have a complicated relationship with sex in the city, but we both definitely believe that we're Mirandas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all like a little bit of a mix of all of them at different points in our lives, depending on what we're going through. But Except um, Carrie. Except Carrie. Carrie's a lot. Um Alyssa's got Carrie hair though, if y'all don't know that. Yeah. But, I <laughs> Yeah, Miranda is uh she's the boss. You know, she's she's the one who ends up happy at the end of the show, spoiler she's alert. So
1: cool. Yeah. God, I love her. Okay, Cynthia Nixon, Abby Jacobson. Nice. Do you nice. know who that is?
0: Yes, I
1: think so. Okay, good. She's from Broad City. She's also the main voice actor on the Netflix show Disenchantment by Matt Groening. I have a a huge crush on Abby Jacobson. I love her voice. I think she's hella funny. I haven't watched that much of Broad City, but what I've seen of it, I liked. So maybe I'll go back and watch some of it. Mm-hmm. Jane Lynch,
0: yes. Uh, Coach Coach Sue from Glee. Yes. Hmm. Margaret Cho. Nice.
1: Bianca Del Rio, who you may not know, but I definitely do.
0: Who is Bianca Del Rio?
1: Yaka Del Rio is a drag queen from New York City who is most famous for winning season six of RuPaul's Drag Race.
0: Ah, that's why you're familiar. Yes.
1: Spoiler alert. Sorry, it happened like seven years ago. Catch up. <laughs> MJ Rodriguez. Okay. From Pose, which I'm also getting around to watching soon, I promise. <laughs> Cheyenne Jackson. All right. He's he's that guy that was on um, American Horror Story for a while. I can't remember any other projects he's in, but this is not meant to be a read on Cheyenne Jackson, but he's one of those like white gay men in Hollywood that look the same. Like there's like a group of like three or four white gay actors that all look the same and Cheyenne Jackson is in that group. Gotcha. Matt Bomer, I think is also in that group. Like they look very similar. Peppermint, who is also a contestant from Reprowl's Drag Race, she was on season nine. She was the first trans queen to come on the show and be openly trans before. Like there were a lot of contestants on Drag Race that came out as trans after the fact, but she was the first one that came on the show. And she was like, I'm a proud trans woman. I'm out here to represent. And she actually came up as the runner up in season nine. That's exciting. Good for her. Trailblazing. She is awesome. I love her. Katya also a drag queen from RuPaul's Drag Race. She was on season seven, as well as All Stars season two. She's personally one of my favorites. I think she's funny as all get out. I remember you talking about her. I love her. I love Katya so much. And last but not least, Alan Cumming, who is also serving as the director on this project. Awesome. You know who Alan Cumming is?
0: Refresh my memory,
1: please. So it's funny because anytime I think of Alan Cumming, he is a very talented individual. But for some reason, the first project that always goes to my mind is Son of the Mask. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was in that. Um, He was in The Good Wife for a while on Mm -hmm. CBS. He's been in a lot of like stage productions. Like he's been in like Macbeth and Cabaret let's see um i'm trying to think he was in hamlet in london
0: he's he's the director
1: yes he but i think he's also starring in it if i've gotten it right um let's see oh he won a tony award for his performance in cabaret there we go perfect
0: he's a broadway guy
1: Yes. So this show is written, created, and produced by Adam Goldman, who I'm not very familiar with, but apparently he has a show called The Outs, which is available on Vimeo. So might have to check that out, see what it, what it's about. And it's produced by Broadway Video and Club Coming Productions, part of Alan Cumming's um, group. Mm-hmm. And it is to be released June 17th. So coming up soon in about 11 days. Exciting. That's pretty much all I have for that story. I just thought it was like the craziest concept I've ever heard in my entire life. And I love that it's an all queer cast behind it. Yeah,
0: That aspect of it is definitely cool for Pride Month, but also just the fact that, I don't know, I like how they made it a sperm bank heist because it's like something that's relevant to, you know, the LGBTQIA community. Absolutely. (laughs) A lot of them, if you want to have children, you would need a sperm or an egg donor, you know? That's that's funny. And I like how they have like specimen from famous people. (laughs) And, you know, that'd be kind of cool if you could combine, like, I don't know. I feel like people would pay a lot of money to get like LeBron James's sperm. Oh, absolutely. And an egg from like, I don't know, Serena Williams or something. Yes. And then just create like this athletic. Super baby. Yeah. (laughs)
1: that'd be wild wow all right so next moving on into the inaugural (laughs) inaugural sorry i'm like kind of nervous about this um i've been doing research since probably mid-may on this project so i hope that everything comes out really well i tried to focus on lgbt icons that are people of color i do have one person that is white but they fall into another another Category of marginalized individuals. So that's not who I'm covering today. Today I am covering the life and legacy of Bayard Rustin. Yes. Are we familiar? No. That's okay because. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. It's fine. It's actually really interesting because to give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about today, Bayard Rustin was a huge, huge player in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Okay. But because of his sexuality he was kind of like moved to the for a lack of a better term moved to the back of the bus because he was very open about who he was and they were like we can't have an openly gay individual in the 60s representing this very important cause not right. saying that the, the gay rights movement is not also a very important cause but different time not something we align with yeah. so I would also like to say that with these individuals I'll be talking about this month, just because I'm, you know, shining a light on them doesn't mean that Annabelle and I necessarily agree with everything that they did in their life. You know, I'm just giving you the facts and you can make of it as you will. Mm -hmm. So to begin Bayard Rustin was born March 17th, 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which I would like to make a note of is the day after my sister-in-law's birthday. we love a pisces he was the ninth out of 12 children yes
0: his mama had a dozen babies wow
1: yes and he also grew up believing that his biological mother was his older sister and not so fun fact but interesting fact two other individuals that experienced this same kind of thing growing up jack nicholson
0: okay
1: and ted bundy Yeah, obviously it worked out better for Bayard and Jack. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Bayard's grandmother was an NAACP member and she was very involved in the fight for civil rights in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So W.E.B. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson were also frequent guests in their household, which I think is so freaking cool.
0: cool. Those are some names, yeah. Oh, don't mind
1: me, Mr. W.E.B. just coming over for dinner tonight. He campaigned against Jim Crow laws in his youth. And re- in regards to his sexuality early on in life, he he knew, like he realized very early, like, oh, I'm a little different. And according to this article from Wikipedia that I read, he mentioned to his grandmother at a very young age that he preferred male companionship over female companionship. And i kind of like tensed when i read that because i was like this this could end really bad or really well i don't i don't know about this because it's a it's a grandmother it's the 1900s you know but according to sources she responded quote i suppose that's just what you need to do
0: wow okay progressive absolutely
1: we love it so bayard enrolled in wilberforce university in 1932 and i looked it up their mascot is the bulldogs go dogs go dogs it is a historically black university in ohio which was operated by the african methodist episcopal church bayard's family was a member of Mm. and nasa's dorothy vaughn of hidden figures fame also attended wilberforce university
0: nice okay
1: she is played by octavia spencer in the movie if you guys are wondering He was a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity uh, while at Wilberforce, but he was expelled in 1936 after organizing a strike. Hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so they couldn't peacefully protest?
1: Nope, not in the 30s. He later attended Cheney State Teachers College, and after completing an activist training program, he actually moved to Harlem in 1937 to attend City College of New York, which... Is where he became involved in the fight to exonerate the scottsboro boys are you familiar with them
0: the name is familiar i'm kind of blanking on like what the case was though
1: you are perfectly fine it's also a situation that we don't learn about very much in school the scottsboro boys were nine black teenage boys ranging in age from 12 to 19 that were accused of raping a white woman in oh, the gosh. 30s okay. and it was it, it was a rough moment in American history I'm not going to go into all of it but he, Bayard Rustin did have a role in trying to fight for their exoneration which I thought was also really cool
0: they were innocent I assume
1: as far as I can tell
0: it was just racism
1: against you know black boys yeah. it, from what I can read it was very much kind of the same thing as to kill
0: a mockingbird
1: It's funny you say that because when I was reading about it, it was To Kill a Mockingbird was actually mentioned in like how the Scottsboro Boys influenced pop culture for you. So, okay. So he originally was involved with the Communist Party of the United States of America who defended civil rights at the time, but later affiliated himself with the Socialist Party of Norman Thomas. Okay. He became a race relations secretary in the summer of 1941 for the fellowship of reconciliation which also is going to go by for or four so if i say four that's what i'm referring to he and his colleagues proposed a march on washington dc in 1941 to protest racial segregation in the armed forces and widespread discrimination in employment so here he's already kind of planting the seeds for a civil rights movement of the 1960s so in order to get their idea like passed to Washington and get better like support for it, they met with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the Oval Office, and Randolph, the individual that I mentioned before, told the president that African Americans would be marching in the Capitol unless desegregation occurred. And to prove their good faith, the organizers canceled the planned march after Roosevelt Issued Executive Order 8802, which is also known as the Fair Employment Act, which banned discrimination in defense industries and federal agencies. And the leader of the organizers canceled the march against Rustin's advisement, like he was still like, "That's nice and everything, but we we still want to do this because there's more things that need to be done." Mm-hmm. So the armed forces were not desegregated until 1948, which is seven years later, Mm -hmm. under an executive order issued by President Harry S. Truman. Yes. Sorry, that was a lot. So now Bayard is traveling to California to help protect the property of more than 120,000 Japanese Americans, most of whom were born as U.S. citizens
0: in the United States camps
1: who had been in prison and internment camps. Yes, yes, yes. And he was a pioneer in the movement to desegregate interstate bus travel as well. So in 1942, he boarded a bus in Louisville bound for Nashville and sat in the second row. And a number of drivers asked him to move to the back according to the Southern practice of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And he refused. He was like, no, I'm staying where I'm not at. I'm not moving. The bus was stopped by police 13 miles north of Nashville. So like, he was almost there. They were already there. And he was arrested. He was beaten and taken to the police station, but was released uncharged, which is nice, I guess. He also spoke about his decision to be arrested and how that moment also clarified his witness as a gay person in an interview with the Washington Blade at the time. Quote, As I was going by the second seat to go to the rear, a white child reached out for the ring necktie I was wearing and pulled it, whereupon its mother said, quote, don't touch an N-word. I'm not going to be saying that word. I don't care the social context of it. Like, I'm
0: not saying it. Yeah, we don't use that on this podcast.
1: No, we do not continuing with the quote, if I go and sit quietly at the back of the bus now, that child who was so innocent of race relations that it was going to play with me will have seen so many Blacks go in the back and sit down quietly that it's going to end up saying, quote, well, they like it back there and I've never seen anybody protest against it.
0: Because they feared for their lives, maybe.
1: Exactly. But he's (laughs) saying like, you know, these children, racism is taught. You know, he's, he's saying like, this child is so innocent and they don't see anything wrong with me. It's their parents that are explaining to them that I'm a quote, bad guy. I owe it to that child, not only to my own dignity, I owe it to that child that it should be educated to know that blacks do not want to sit in the back. And therefore I should get arrested, letting all these white people in the bus know that I do not accept that. It occurred to me shortly after that, that it was an absolute necessity for me to declare my homosexuality. Because if I didn't, I was part of the prejudice. I was aiding and abetting the prejudice that was a part of the effort to destroy me. Wow. I know, right? Well said. Yeah, said. I know, right? He also helped to form the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, with George Hauser and James Farmer and Bernice Fisher in 1942. He was not considered a direct founder, but he was more like an uncle, so to speak. It was a pacifist organization based on the writings of Gandhi bayard refused induction into the military and was imprisoned in lewisburg federal penitentiary from 1944 until 1946 where he organized protests against segregated dining facilities he also organized the free india committee for for the one i mentioned previously Mm -hmm. after his release he was frequently arrested for protesting against british colonial rule in both india and africa so he's spreading Like, he's like, I'm not just messing with American civil rights. I'm dealing with everybody.
0: Yeah, he had a lot of issues he was clearly very passionate about.
1: Yes. So now we're going into the later 40s. He formed the Journey of Reconciliation in 1947 with George Hauser, who I mentioned before. It was the first part of the Freedom Rides in protest of Morgan v. Commonwealth of Virginia, Mm -hmm. which banned racial discrimination in interstate travel as unconstitutional. And because of this, he actually served 22 days on a chain gang in North Carolina for violating state Jim Crow laws regarding segregated seating on public transportation. This man, he got a rap sheet.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And he wasn't scared of
1: it clearly either. Absolutely not. He traveled to India in 1948 to learn nonviolent civil resistance tactics under the Gandhian movement. This was obviously organized before Gandhi's assassination, but they still went through with it. From 1947 until 1952, he also met with independence movement leaders in Ghana and Nigeria. In 1951, he formed the Committee to Support South African Resistance, which later became the American Committee on Africa.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, now we're going to get a little into why he wasn't a big big figure in the american civil rights movement mm-hmm. in 1943 he was arrested in pasadena california for sexual activity with another man in a parked car and he was originally charged with vagrancy and lewd conduct and he pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of sex perversion and that's like so that's basically sodomy but That's how it was referred to back then, specifically in California, even if it was consensual. He served 60 days in jail for this offense. And this was the first time his sexuality was brought to the public attention. Like he was very candid in his private life. Like if we were at a party, like he's like, I'm hella gay. But like, if we go out like to a organized event, he'd probably be a little more reserved. He resigned at four because of his convictions, and he left his position at the War Resisters League in 1956 to advise for a young Martin Luther King Jr. on Gandhian tactics. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: That's awesome. I know, right? He advised MLK Jr. I know. On the nonviolent protests. Very he nice. Knows.
1: So King was obviously very influential in organizing the Montgomery bus boycotts. And I, th- I believe this is a quote from Bayard Rustin. I didn't cite it. I apologize. It says, quote, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be protected by guns. So he's like, like Bayard Rustin comes in and he's like, we're not doing that. Like, let's not. It's not. not about it. So he advised King to abandon the armed protection, including a personal handgun that M.O.K. owned. He was okay. like, get rid of that. We're, no.
0: Gotta walk the walk, too. Truly. In
1: 1957, they began organizing the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, also known as the SCLC. And leaders were concerned of Bayard Rustin's sexuality at this time and his past communist affiliations. Afterwards... They planned the march on Washington, but it wasn't included in the National Democratic Convention, like, talks at the time, because the U.S. Representative of New York at the time, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., threatened to leak fake rumors of an affair between Rustin and King. Wow.
0: Uh, That would have been scandalous.
1: Right? And... And because of this, King like canceled the whole thing and Rustin left the SELC and his sexuality once again had not been discussed outside of the civil rights leadership. So coming into this you know, Southern Christian leadership thing he was like, Ooh, let's, let's keep it on the DL cause these people, I don't know if they're gonna jive with that. Okay, so now we're getting to the actual March on Washington. Quote, when the moment came for an unprecedented mass gathering in Washington, Randolph pushed Rustin forward as the logistical choice to organize it. Like he's like this guy has it. He he's got the moxie. He has to do it. So they were rec- recruited for a March on Washington in 1962 by A Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin was instrumental in organizing the march. He drilled off-duty police officers as marshals. He got bus captains to direct traffic and he scheduled the podium speakers for the time. In August of 1963, South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond rallied against Rustin as, quote, a communist draft dodger and homosexual, unquote. Oh, OK. No right? The, uh, the fight words.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and included his entire Pasadena arrest file as, like, proof of why he shouldn't be involved in the fight. He also produced an FBI photograph of Rustin talking to King while the latter was bathing to imply a relationship.
0: Oof. Wow. The tea. The tea is scalding.
1: So hot right now. Despite King's support, NAACP chairman at the time Roy Wilkins did not want Rustin to receive credit for his role in organizing the March on Washington, and because of this, he served as deputy rather than director. Mm-hmm. He appeared on the September 6th, 1963 cover of Life magazine with Randolph as, quote, the leaders of the march. So he was kind of given credit, but also people were like Martin Luther King, which don't get me wrong, Martin Luther King, great guy. He has his own faults in some ways, but he was instrumental in the civil rights movement. So moving on to 1964, Reverend Milton Gallimason invited Rustin to coordinate citywide boycott For the united federation of teachers executive board which was also inviting them and local teachers encouraging them to join the pickup line picket line sorry because there was so much going on with school boycotts not going well like new york was kind of a mess at the time and rustin refused but promised to protect participating teachers from reprisals And at the time, 400,000 New Yorkers participated in the February 3rd boycott, demanding complete integration of citywide schools, which would require whites to attend schools in Black neighborhoods and challenge the coalition between the African-Americans and the white liberals, inciting backlash. I know this is a lot. I promise I'm going to like, I'm like getting there.
0: No, this is great. I mean, like, I didn't know about this person and a lot of us don't. Now we're getting into why. (gasps) Okay, so historian Daniel Pearlstein notes that, quote,
1: Newspapers were astounded both by the numbers of Black and Puerto Rican parents and children who boycotted and by the complete absence of violence or disorder from the protest. Like, he was like, this is amazing. No one's fighting each other. They're just like, hey, man, like, let's talk it out instead of fighting.
0: Discuss. Let's be civil.
1: (laughs) Yes. This is the largest civil rights demonstration to date,
0: 2021.
1: It was also aimed to provide far-reaching benefits for teachers and students. Rustin denounced the reverend and abandoned the coalition after it was all over because he was like, we don't see eye to eye. I don't know how I feel about you anymore. And he was invited to speak at the University of Virginia in 1964, where school administrators tried to ban him out of fear that he would organize a school boycott there.
0: (laughs) People were scared of him causing all this.
1: Oh, yeah. No, he, he he was a rough, rough guy. Not really. He didn't fight, but.
0: <laughs> he was he was a rebel rouser. He was yes.
1: like, stir the pot, get the conversation going. Good, good use of the word. At the 1964 Democratic National Convention, he became the advisor to the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, where his goal became known as legitimate non-Jim Crow delegation from their state, where. In Mississippi, Blacks had been officially disenfranchised since the turn of the century as they were generally throughout the South Mm -hmm. and excluded from the official political system. And DNC leaders Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey offered only two non-voting seats to the MFDP with the official seating going to the regular segregationist Mississippi delegation. Mm -hmm. And Rustin, following a line set by other leaders at the time, urged the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to take the offer, they said no, they angrily rejected the arrangement, many of the supporters becoming highly suspicious of Bayard Rustin, and his attempt to compromise appealed to the Democratic Party leadership. So they were like, okay, we can appreciate him trying to fix things. But the members of the MFDP were like, no, you're settling and we don't like that. Following the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he advocated closer ties between the Civil Rights Movement and the Democratic Party, specifically the white working class. Mm -hmm. And he worked on what they called from protest to politics in 1964 with this man named Tom Kahn. Mm -hmm. And this allowed him to analyze the changing economy and its implications for African-Americans. It brought about a rise of automation, which in turn would reduce the demand for low-skill, high-paying jobs, which would jeopardize the position of urban African-American working class members, particularly in northern states. And it also made him believe that the working class had to collaborate across racial lines for comic economic goals. His prophecy had been proven right in the dislocation and loss of jobs for many urban African-Americans due to the restructuring of industry in the coming decades. said those are a lot of words i'm sorry
0: a lot of words but it makes sense though to kind of get the working class all on the same team and not make it about race just make it about you know economic goal yes exactly
1: he advocated for economic equality for black individuals he felt that the black community was threatened by identity politics at the time which is kind of where black power comes in Mm -hmm. and he believed That black power was a position of, quote, fantasy of middle-class black people that repeated the political and moral errors of previous black nationalists while alienating the white allies needed by the African-American community. That's his words. That's not mine. He publicly praised a neoconservative approach, quote, with refusal to pander to minority groups, unquote, and for opposing affirmative action quotas in hiring as well as black study programs in colleges. Okay. Okay. And because of this, he was criticized as a sellout by former colleagues in the civil rights movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once again, you know, that's, that, that's his business, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he later was increasingly working to strengthen the labor movement, which he saw as the champion of empowerment for the African-American community and for the economic justice of all Americans. In 1972, he became a national co-chairman of the socialist party of America. And during the 1960s, he was a member of the league for ended industrial democracy and would remain a member for years, becoming the vice president during the 80s. Now we're getting to the gay rights movement. All that to get here. <laughs> he testified on behalf of New York State's gay rights bill and he coined this writing, I guess you could say I think is, which was 1986's The New In Words Are Gays. Strong title yeah quote today blacks are no longer the litmus paper or the barometer of social change blacks are in every segment of society and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination the new n-words are gays it is in this sense that gay people are the new barometer for social change the question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable group in mind which he believed was gay people okay okay In 1986, he also declined to contribute to In the Life, a Black gay anthology, because, quote, I was not involved in the struggle for gay rights as a youth. I did not come out of the closet voluntarily. Circumstances forced me out. While I have no problem with being publicly identified as a homosexual, it would be dishonest of me to present myself as one who was in the forefront of the struggle for gay rights. I fundamentally consider sexual orientation to be a private matter, as such, it had not been a factor which had greatly influenced my role as an activist. And he obviously held off in pursuing the gay rights movement for a very long time until the 1980s. And this was in part due to an urging by his partner, Walter Nagel. And due to lack of a marriage equality at time, this, this is going to be a little weird for you know a modern mindset. So just bear in mind, we're in the 80s and it's different. Mm -hmm. Due to the lack of marriage equality at the time, Rustin and Nagel took the then not so unusual step to solidify their partnership and protect their union legally through adoption.
0: So one of them adopted the other? In
1: 1982, Baird-Rustin adopted Nagel, who was 30 years old at the time. (laughs) and nagel explained quote it was concerned about protecting my rights because gay people had no protection at the time marriage between a same-sex couple was inconceivable and so he adopted me and that was the only thing we could do to legalize our relationship i'm sorry
0: so yeah i was gonna say so it's a way around basically the marriage thing it allows you to live together and support somebody and you know claim them as a dependent
1: become family
0: yeah i don't totally know what goes into adoption um and the legal ramifications of it but that's very interesting yes that was the loophole but that's also very creative i i kind of respect the um the work around there yeah
1: um nagel's biological mother had to sign like a legal paper disowning him Oh my gosh. (laughs) And they had to send a social worker to their house. And when the social worker arrived, she had to sit them down and talk to them and make sure that this was a fit home for a 30 year old man. It's weird. It's so, it's so out there, but I totally understand why they were doing it because they loved each other and they wanted to be together. Yeah. David Platt, who was Bayard's partner from the 40s, commented later in life, quote, I never had any sense at all that Bayard felt any shame or guilt about his homosexuality. That was rare in those days, which I love.
0: Yes, I do love that.
1: Bayard Rustin died on August 24th, 1987, of a perforated appendix. He was survived by his partner of 10 years, Walter. And President Ronald Reagan issued a statement on his death, praising his work for civil rights and for, quote, human rights throughout the world. He later said Rustin was, quote, denounced by former friends because he never gave up his conviction that minorities in America could and would succeed based on their individual merit. He's often forgotten due to the the behind-the-scenes work and public discomfort with his sexuality and former communist membership. Mm -hmm. And of course, his neoconservative leanings um, led to fallouts with civil rights leaders, In 2003, a documentary called Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin was released at the Sundance Film Festival, and it actually was a grand jury prize nominee at that said festival. It renewed interest in his contributions to the civil rights leader. He had a very good friendship with Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, which led to the former to dissent the 5-4 decision to upload to uphold the constitutionality of state sodomy laws in the later overturned Bowers v. Hardwick in 1986. All right. In July of 2007, the Bayard Rustin Coalition was formed with permission from his estate by San Francisco Bay Area Black LGBT community leaders. And the goal of the coalition is to promote greater Black participation in the electoral process, advances civil and human rights issues, and promotes Rustin's legacy. And alongside the coalition, the bayard Rustin Center for LGBTQA Activism, Awareness, and Reconciliation was rededicated at Quaker Guilford College in 2011. In 2002, he was inducted into the Legacy Walk, which is a public display celebrating LGBTQ history and people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He was posthumously awarded the honorary membership into Delta Phi Upsilon, which is a fraternity for gay, bisexual, and progressive men. Okay. In 2013, he was an honoree in the U.S. Department of Labor Hall of Honor. In 2019, he was one of 50 inaugural American pioneers, trailblazers, and heroes inducted on the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Monument, which we'll get into later in the month. It is the first national monument dedicated to LGBTQ rights and history. And in 2020, the California State Senator Scott Weiner, Chair of the California Legislative LGBT Caucus and Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, Chair of the California Legislative Black Caucus, called for Governor Gavin Newsom to issue Rustin a pardon for his 1953 arrest, citing his legacy to the civil rights icon. The pardon was issued on February 5th, simultaneously with the announcement of a new process for fast-tracking pardons for those convicted under historical laws making homosexuality illegal. And I would like to end today on this quote from President Barack Obama, who on August 8th, 2013, posthumously awarded Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom, saying, quote, Bayard Rustin was an unyielding activist for civil rights dignity, and equality for all. An advisor to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he promoted nonviolent resistance, participated in one of the first Freedom Rides, organized the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom, and fought tirelessly for marginalized communities at home and abroad. As an openly gay African-American, Mr. Rustin stood at the intersection of several of the fights for equal rights. And that is the story of Bayard Rustin.
0: Wow. He had quite a life. So many affiliations for him were so frowned upon, Mm -hmm. like obviously the LGBT Association, as well as we all know about, you know, the Red Scare and how paranoid everyone was about communism. And while that wasn't necessarily a lasting affiliation of his, I can understand why he was sort of lost to history a little bit kind of with everything he had going on um but I'm glad that even if it is posthumously he was able to get his estate at least was able to get some credit for all of the work that he put in for civil rights
1: I'm fairly certain his his partner is still alive by the way Walter Nagel and I'm pretty sure he has the medal I believe That's good. I think is lovely because they were together for 10 years before he passed. And it was so cool. And right before I got on the call, I actually saw that Netflix is actually planning to make a series about Bayard Rustin's life. All right. I'm sorry. That was so long. Like literally when I was reading about this man, like obviously I I knew about his contributions to the civil rights movement, but I had no idea about all of this other stuff, like you mentioned. And I was blown away. And I was like, I have to include all of this. So I'm sorry if it went a little bit long, guys.
0: No, I mean, it was great. He had quite a life and he's certainly not, I guess, someone as mainstream, I feel like. But it sounds like he's getting more recognition as of late, especially if Netflix is going to do a piece on him. So that's good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. You're
1: welcome. Also, I know that he doesn't really have anything to do with entertainment and that's kind of my shtick on this podcast, but I can assure you that the majority of the people that I'll be talking about for the rest of the month are involved in the entertainment business in some way, shape or form. Bayard Rustin to me is just someone who really, really needed this, you know, this highlighting so to speak I know mm-hmm. I'm such an influential figure and everybody's going to listen to every word that I say so had to right. talk about Bayard <laughs> Rustin
0: <laughs> yeah that was a great story thank you for that Alyssa kind of carried us this week because I did not shut
1: up Hackers
0: and the opioid crisis are not are not the greatest things to listen to but, but they are uh, important but they are important and hopefully this week we'll have some less dark news in the big bad world of business and hopefully there will be some interesting ipos or M&As to talk about i almost brought up the crispy cream decided to go public this week or they've been filing um this will be the second time they've gone public it was a few years ago um crispy cream is doing really well because in quarantine people are eating donuts and and everyone the vaccine has, initiative. And the vaccine initiative. And everyone has kind of like a positive association with donuts because you usually either like get them for free or you get like a big box and you share them with a bunch of people you enjoy. And like, yeah. so their IPO is expected to do well, but that was not really much of, there wasn't enough content on it, I felt for me to talk about, but little well, fun fact that also happened in business this week. All right. So thank you guys for joining us. Um, we will be back next week with new stories. We hope everyone has wonderful week and happy pride. Happy pride.